Welcome to Outside the Tank, the first podcast in the world that interviews the entrepreneurs featured on Shark Tank. We get the inside scoop on how they got there, what lessons they learned, their biggest regrets, what didn't air on TV, what has happened to them since, and so much more. Prepare to be informed, inspired, and entertained. Welcome to an all-new episode of Outside the Tank. Welcome to an all-new episode of Outside the Tank. I'm Tom. I'm Joe. And we're with Jono, Myostorm Therapeutic Massage Ball, Season 11, Episode 5, October 27th, 2019. After we did this interview, I bought one of these things. Ah. And I, I roll around on it on, in my garage. I got the heating thing going. It it's really warm, helps out. It vibrates. It helps you feel better. Yeah, it's fantastic. You know why I need it? Because I sit on Zoom all day. <laughs> I, I, it's so unhealthy. Don't we all? Sitting, standing desk, doesn't matter. I sit on <laughs> Zoom all day and my back and neck kill me. So this thing has definitely helped out. Really enjoyed it. Uh, Jono goes into the tank asking 150000 for 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, he had done a Kickstarter in August of 2018. Uh, he wanted to raise 20000 and he raised seventy thousand um, dollars. At the time he's on the show, it's a hundred and sixty dollar price point, and he was making them for forty dollars. Although he said at ten thousand units, he could get that down to twenty seven dollars, and he had sold nine hundred of them. So, did he get a deal? It was interesting. Um, Mister Wonderful made an offer, and his offer was uh, hundred fifty thousand for five percent, but Mister Wonderful wanted a dollar. Uh, per ball until he recovered uh, $500,000. Uh, Matt made an offer. He came in at 150 at, but he wanted 10%. He wanted a bigger bite of the apple. Uh, Cuban made an offer of a quarter million at 20% and then quickly went out, uh, and that left Damon. And Damon made a funny comment. He goes, I'm not interested. You guys should just kind of roll your asses out of here, which was <laughs> a very flippant remark. So obviously no interest there. And Lori came back and made the same offer as Kevin, and they went with Lori. There you go. All right, let's watch our uh, interview with Jono. And as always, we'll be back for the post game talking about everything we learned from this very talented entrepreneur. All right, we're here with Jono, Myostorm Therapeutic Massage Ball. It gives off heat, it vibrates, it massages you, nothing like it. <laughs> you like I, I bet their advertising's better than that. <laughs> All right, so you're an engineer, as you said during your pitch, but love to hear where the idea came from and then how you formed that partnership with your partners because there wasn't much of that on the pitch. So I'd, I'd love to hear the whole story. Yeah, right. For sure. Um, So yeah, I was an engineering student um, in college and kind of by chance, I got into a research group that was cross-disciplinary between engineering and exercise science, physiology. Um, Essentially, we we studied vibration. So our, our group studied how vibration did all kinds of things, how it affected buildings and structures all the way down to um, how it affected the human body. And that's kind of a group that I was specifically in. I was tasked with researching how vibration 
reacts with the body, um, whether it was, you know, on a full body vibration plate, like, you know, they, they use, um, for, for therapy, uh, but very little research had been done on how vibration affects, um, a localized point, right. Just putting it on, on one spot on your body. So I was kind of uh, leading a, a research paper on how vibration can be used to help, um, relieve pain and TMJ, you know, uh, jaw pain. Um, and, and those types of disorders. And we found some really cool stuff. We found that um, certain levels of, of vibration were producing these amazing results and reducing muscle stiffness and reducing pain. And we kind of honed in on a specific set of frequencies and amplitudes that we found to be therapeutic and weren't really being utilized out there in industry. So not all vibration vibrations created equal. Some can really harm your body. Um, some can produce no effect at all and different ranges and frequencies we found produce different, produce different effects. So I was tasked with building a device for our research team that we could use that would help us utilize some of these vibrations, you know, what we could test with. And, um, so that's what I started doing. It was kind of just started off as a, as a school project. And then, uh, it kind of started to get a little, a little bit deeper as I was trying to decide what should this product or device look like? Um, because, it could have been anything, right? Like it could have been a stick. It could have been a ball. It could have been whatever. And so I kind of started asking around with um, some friends that I knew. I had a, a, a really good friend who was a professional athlete. His name was Shaquille Walker. He ran the 800 meter for Brooks. Um, he also holds the world record in the road 800 meter. Um, and I'd actually known that he'd used vibration products in his recovery before. So I just kind of called him asking him for advice and insight. Like, Hey, what do you think? This is what I'm learning in my research. And as soon as I told him about it, he got just really excited. And he's like, wow, really? This is what you're doing research on? Yeah, I use stuff like this all the time. Like, if you think yours, you're finding something that could actually be better, this could be a cool product. We should, we should talk, to, talk to my team about it. Um, and that's when I started working with, you know, more athletes to determine, you know, how we wanted this product to look like. Um, because we wanted to make something that was versatile that would be used, right? So we were going to use athletes to test this like in our research. Um, but still to that point, it was all just a research project. Um, and then it, it so happened that some of my professors kind of convinced me to put the product into a business competition, an innovation competition on campus, just because they thought it would be fun. And we won a few thousand dollars from that. Um, <laughs> and that was <laughs> the first point that I was like, okay, maybe there's something here. Like maybe we could, this is beyond just a school project and, and could be something a little bit bigger. Um, and so we entered more school competitions, did well in those, got invited into some, you know, business incubators for student businesses on campus that really helped us catch the vision for turning this into to something more. Um, and then somewhere in that time frame, we brought on uh, Jared, who was also on Shark Tank with, with me and, and Shaq. Um, and he's an Olympic marathoner. He went to Rio in 2016. He was one of the top marathoners, um, this, this last, you know, Olympic trial cycle. Um, and is just a great guy, but he's also a statistician and a professor. So he actually helped us very early on with doing research, studying, testing, you know, getting his, his teammates and stuff to, to check out the product. And he was kind of one of the final pieces to the team. Um, and, that's kind of how it began. Yeah. So moving from there to bringing the product to market, what were, what was that journey like? You had to have the, 
the prototype built. You probably had several iterations. You had to have it manufactured. Talk a little bit about that process. Yep. So I probably went through six or seven prototypes myself, just like using the 3D printers on campus, just trying to figure it out. And I had a lot of help from you know, other students on my research team and my professors and things like that. But yeah, we were just 3D printing prototypes for a while and um, didn't really have a, a great concept of how to get it manufactured. And I kind of just lucked out with a, with a lot of mentors who knew the direction that I should be headed and pointed me and connected me um, with people that, that could help out with the actual manufacturing. So I took my my rinky dinky cheesy prototype to a manufacturer and said, Hey, can you actually make this? And, um, that's, that's kind of where it started to take the next level before it, it went to market. We wanted to do some more validation. So with some of those early prototypes, we put together a Kickstarter uh, campaign. So that was kind of our final form of validation. We decided, you know what, we've got a lot of interest. There's a bunch of athletes that like this. We won some money from these competitions, but we want to see if people will actually buy it. Um, so we'll run a Kickstarter. We'll just let it go, see what happens. If we hit our funding goal, then, you know, we'll, we'll commit to this. We'll actually go and try to raise more funding and, 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 and do this thing. And so we set a funding goal on our Kickstarter for $20,000. That was in August, I think of 2018. And, um, yeah, it, it went really well. We ended up over tripling our goal, ended up doing almost $70,000 on that campaign. And so with, with relatively little effort, we kind of wanted it to be like a, a validation um, thing where we weren't going to put a ton of marketing dollars into it. We just wanted to see if people are actually interested enough in this to, to pay for it. Yeah, I got to ask you, John. What did we do? We've talked. We've talked to so many great entrepreneurs who had access to some mentors, some three D printers. Now yeah. there's something called Kickstarter and many others. Yeah. What would we have done without three D printers and Kickstarters? How did we even launch products? <laughs> right, I don't know. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I rely on all of those things. So. <laughs> Well, you, you guys did well on, on Kickstarter, and it really served, uh, certainly the $70,000 is significant, um, uh, more than three times your goal in your ass. But more than that, uh, I gather that it, it gave you guys confidence that there was a great market for this product. Yeah, that, that was the main thing. It, it gave us that confidence boost that we needed to really make the choice to pursue this. Um, and even though $70,000 was huge for us, we were, we were excited about that it still wasn't enough to get the, get the ball rolling, rolling, you know, no, no pun intended there, but um, it's expensive to, to produce a product, right? So the tooling and molding um, on that product was upwards of $40,000 just to be able to even make a unit and then expensive to make them. Right. So we, we use the Kickstarter. We knew that we had people interested and um, knew that there, there would be people willing to invest in us if we could show proof of concept on on that Kickstarter. So having that such a successful Kickstarter just gave us the confidence to go out and raise the rest of the money that we needed to actually make this a reality. Um, and the other purpose that Kickstarter served is that that's actually what kind of got us some attention, uh, specifically from Shark Tank. So Shark Tank, the, their team that kind of looks for, for companies and, and you know, entrepreneurs to, to audition for the show, found us on Kickstarter and reached out. I actually, it's kind of a funny story. I thought it was 
I got an email from a casting producer from Shark Tank and I thought it was a scam because <laughs> um, I'd, I'd seen other stuff like it, you know, like, you know, as soon as I started my business, I was getting emails from all kinds of things like, oh, former Shark Tank this and Shark Tank that. And uh, they were always just kind of sketchy. And so there was typos in the email and I was like, what the heck is this? Um, but I, I gave it a shot and responded to the email and ended up turning out and had that first phone call audition for Shark Tank. And they, they loved us. They loved the, the concept and they loved the team. And um, then it was kind of a long journey to actually get on Shark Tank. I think, I think they said like typically over like 30,000 people apply every season and only maybe a hundred make it on the show. Yeah. Um, so there's several rounds obviously of, of auditioning and getting cut and, um, yeah, that was a blast that, that whole experience. Were you happy with how your pitch went and, uh, how did you feel about the deal? Yeah. So it's interesting. We, we were well prepared for, for the experience on Shark Tank. We'd done a lot of pitches before and, um, you know, had a lot of confidence going up to that point. And we prepared for pretty much everything we thought we could prepare for. Like we were, we were so prepared for the sharks to just tear us apart, right. And answer all their questions and be on top of it. The one thing we did not prepare for was for all the sharks to just totally love it and have more than one offer. <laughs> we kind of went in there. was like, what are we going to do to get, to get an offer? Like, how are we going to fight to get an offer and show them that like we're legit. And it totally went the other direction. They all just instantly loved it. We got offers from almost all the sharks except for, um, uh, Damon and he was he was going to make an offer. We just didn't give him the chance yet. And so, in the in the little clip, you can see he was kind of frustrated about that. And so, we actually weren't prepared for what to do with multiple offers. And so that was that kind of actually caught us a little bit off guard. Um, we prepared for every other scenario and watched like every episode of Shark Tank that existed up to that to to prepare for it. But uh, we just we weren't ready. So overall, we we were just really excited about how the pitch went. We think it went really well. Um, all the sharks loved the product. There's a lot in there, obviously that you don't see, you know, you're kind of in the, in the tank for 45 minutes plus. Um, and so everything went, went really quite well. Um, and we were excited about the deal that we made. Like, you know, to be honest, you, as soon as, as soon as that's over, you're kind of like, did we make the right choice? Did we do the right thing? Should we have argued more? Should we have asked for, <laughs> for more? And so you had those, those question marks just like eating at you for, for a, a while afterwards. But at the end of the day, looking back, like I'm, I'm really uh, proud of, you know, how we performed there, the choice that we made and um, how everything turned out uh, under that kind of pressure. So. Yeah, you did have uh, a crossfire of offers, and of course, uh, Kevin went with his. Uh, he, he threw you five percent of equity, gave you a better valuation, but asked for his uh, traditional royalty. And then Lori really just kind of matched uh, Kevin's offer with, uh, and you you jumped pretty quickly. So, did you go yeah. in thinking Lori may be the best shark, or was there any bias there going in? <laughs> A little bit. Like there was um, a few sharks that we were really excited about potentially working with. Um, you know, Mark, obviously, um, you know, with his ex experience with the Mavs and um, sports and this type of stuff. And then, um, you know, we were also excited about potentially working with Lori because even though we kind of fell into this athletic brand and profile, most of our research is actually surrounding chronic pain. 
athletes. And most of our customers aren't even athletes. They're people who just experience everyday aches and pains. The product works incredibly for them. So we had started to learn just from our normal sales and even from our Kickstarter that a major portion of our customers were, were um, you know, people who were age 50 plus, a lot of them women, right? And so we felt like Lori would actually help us expand into that part of the market, which was bigger than athletes, right? So we felt like we had nailed that athletic space down. So it would have been great to get some, you know, Mark um, for, for that type of thing. But we were like more excited about the potential for growth into the pain market, um, which we felt Lori would just have a different perspective and a different, you know, able, a different ability to kind of help us penetrate that than we currently had on our team. So that's ultimately, ultimately why we ended up um, picking Lori, I think that the deal, you know, Kevin and Lori had the same offer, right? But we went in a little bit more excited about potentially working with Lori um, just because of the investments that she'd made, the space that she's in. We know that she had invested in pain type products and um, we were interested in, in, in that expertise. So. And tell me about the buyer a little bit. I think it came up uh, on the clip that was aired, but is your buyer a buyer that's already somewhat uh, educated, maybe has used something as simple or basic as a foam roller? Is, is your buyer already a buyer that understands uh, what they're looking for and the power maybe of heat and vibration in a, uh, a tool like this? Um, typically, yeah. Most of our cus customers have had a little bit of experience or education with recovery devices or at least pain relief um, so again, on those two fronts, the athlete, the athlete side, they're very familiar with what our product can do. Like they've, they've used things similar like lacrosse balls and foam rollers and used, you know, all the percussion massagers and things out there. So they, they kind of understand it a lot more. And um, from that side of thing, from the athletic side of things, typically um, our customers are a little bit more educated. Um, on the other side where people are just in pain and looking for pain relief, um, what we found is people who are truly in pain that they've tried everything, right? They've tried all kinds of things and they're always looking for something new that can help. Um, and that's what we're really passionate about is actually providing a product that can help relieve people's pain. So we have our, our guarantee, right? Like if, if you try the product and it doesn't actually help you find relief, like we don't want your money, send it back, you know, we'll, 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 we'll take care of you. But um, most of our customers have had some experience with using some type of product to help them find pain relief. Noted. I know there was a very healthy discussion. Of course, we're seeing 11 minutes of probably an hour, but there was a healthy discussion about price point. Lori was really um, pushing back on price point, asking you if you've tested it at $99. And you were, at that time, you were um, $160 retail and somewhere around $40 landed. I know that you mentioned you can get your costs down into the uh, high 20s with a volume of 10,000 or more, I think. But uh, we noticed that your price point today for one meteor is 149. So I'm curious, um, what did you find out about pricing? Did you test it at a lower price point? How did you wind up at 149? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. One of the things that I feel like, one of the only things that our episode on Shark Tank glasses over pretty significantly conversation wise, what happened between us and Lori and the sharks is yeah, there was a lot of dialogue around the price point. And before we got into shark tank, we'd actually done quite a bit of testing. We, we, we tested at higher price points. We tested at lower price points. And, and we had this discussion with Lori is what we had found in our own price point and validation 
going into it is that there's there's actually a level of perception of, of value to the product, um, especially with the people who are actually in pain because they're used to getting several hundred dollar products, like spending a lot of money on things that don't work. And so we found with that group of people, when we dropped below that hundred dollar price point, that they kind of just weren't convinced that it was going to be that good, right? They're, they're used to like seeing something that's more expensive because they think it's actually going to help. Um, on the flip side, on the athlete side, you know, they're, most athletes are just trying to get everything they can for free or used to getting stuff for free. And so like they'll try things. Um, and we found that our market is more with, you know, uh, the, the kind of hobbyist athletes that are, you know, doing Ironmans and being that they can afford like big triathlons and things like that. Um, but we, and we had told Laura, we had had a lot of conversations that like, Hey, we don't want to drop the pricing on, on this product below 150 really, or definitely below, below hundred, because we think that, uh, it'll actually perform better and, and sell more at this higher value. Plus our margins just didn't make sense. And I think to the, the general consumer that, you know, when they hear that it costs us $40 and we sell it for 150, they're like, holy cow, like you guys are charging so much, but there's a lot of other costs that, that go into selling those products, right? There's advertising costs and then shipping costs and our overhead that we have to overcome. So our margins um, in, in most products that people buy, right? If they're not hitting a, a four or five X on their cost of goods sold, you know, for a, for a $40 product, you'd expect it to be 160 to $200 in MSRP. Otherwise, in e-commerce, you're really not making that much money. And so actually all of the other, we saw a little bit of it, but some of the other sharks like Mark and stuff kind of argued against Lori saying like, no, there's no way they should sell it for under 150, right? Like that doesn't make any sense for margins. And this is a more expensive product. Um, Mark was actually a great ambassador for us in, in, the, in the pitch because he had a lot of familiarity with these types of products. And he was like, no, you guys should not sell this for less. Um, I, I know the space. I know what products are out there. This is a great price point. It's great value. The product's better. And so we actually helped convince a lot of the other sharks <laughs> that we were kind of on the right path. But what had happened is we had talked to Lori about making a new product, um, like a variation of it, um, that was in that $99 price range um, to capitalize on that market that she was familiar with that had that psychological price cutoff. And you kind of don't see that from the clip um, that there was more of that dialogue behind it. So we still have full intentions, um, which we will actually be launching this year. Uh, uh, six, six other products we're launching this year that will have various price points and ranges that um, you know will allow customers and every you know level of, of income bracket to to kind of have the benefits of of our technology. Um, so that was kind of always the plan: is that. We're going to keep this as our core product at that $150 price point. We'll probably launch products that are more expensive, but we'll also try to launch something that's lower cost. And Lori was excited about helping us nail down that product that could be that, that $100 price point to capitalize on just a bigger, a bigger market. So at, at the end of the day, Lori was right, and Mark Cuban may have also been right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you acquire customers? Um, 99% of, um, all of our customer acquisition is just, uh, online through social media, advertising, Google, things like that. Pre COVID, we did a lot of events. Um, we sold to chiropractors and clinics and we're going to marathons and, you know, had booths and expos that kind of all stopped because sports stopped, right? So sports teams weren't buying clinics were kind of closed up. So they weren't buying and obviously events have been, 
a little hairy. So we kind of just transferred everything back over into e-commerce and all of our sales come directly online. And everything is still e-commerce for the most part? Correct. Yeah, we we have a, a big clinical um, strategy that we've been implementing. So we do, you know, there is, I would say maybe like 5% of our business is, is clinical, right? Direct sales to chiropractors and physical therapists that buy these in bulk to just have in their clinics as well as to sell to their patients, which we've had a ton of success with. Um, and so we anticipate that portion of our business expanding pretty rapidly this year and expect that to probably start to take up 30 to 40% of all of our, of all of our sales. So we'll be shifting more towards clinical um, and less towards e-commerce um, as, as we kind of expand that channel. Interesting. So walk us through, you know, what happened between the time that you aired and get us to now. I mean, we're talking, you know, year and a half. What, what happened immediately following the show airing? What are some things that you've done to improve the business, um, you know, over that, those 18 months? Yeah. Well, one of the dirty uh, little secrets of Shark Tank is that, um, they don't really give you any anticipation of if your episode is going to air. <laughs> they tell you like, Hey, there's no guarantee that, that you're actually going to be on TV up until like about two weeks before you're actually going to be on TV. So they really don't give you much of a chance to prepare for that. Right. Um, everyone anticipates like, Hey, if I get on TV, it's going to be a huge increase in sales. We need to have like a, a ton of inventory to prepare for that. And we just didn't have the means to, because we, we didn't want to, buy a ton of inventory if we weren't going to actually be on TV and just be stuck with it. Right. So um, what we ended up having to do was uh, pre-sales. So when our Shark Tank episode hit, we had a, a limited amount of inventory, but we were ready to do, um, you know, backordered uh, pre-sales on a, another version of the, the product. And when Shark Tank aired, like before we even started our pitch, the second that we appeared in the hallway, we had thousands of people to our website. It almost just crashed our support systems and everything. I had a whole team trying to answer emails and chat support, and it was just overwhelming. Um, so the, the the amount of sales we got just from that Shark Tank appearance was just astronomical. We could not have been prepared for it, and we we had ordered you know 10,000 10, units for that. Shark Tank airing and sold out of those in, in like a couple hours and had to put in another order of 10,000 units uh, before before the end of the year because it aired, it aired the last day of October. So before the end of the year, we sold out of all of those pre-ordered units and had to do another round of back order um, sales. And it was just, it was um, a major headache. It was a good headache to have because it was successful. But um, I tell you what, like it's it's not easy to to balance the, uh, the customer relationship when, you know, they're expecting to get a product and they find out that, you know, like, Oh, it's backward. I got to wait two months. And then they're like really eager. Right. And so we had a lot of, uh, orders that we guaranteed to arrive before Christmas, which 95% of them did, but we had, you know, 5% that got there like a day late. Right. And people don't, people don't like to have their, their gifts a day late for Christmas. Right. So there was a, a lot of, um, a lot of headaches and a lot of things that we learned as you know young business owners that um, we we wish we could have done differently, right? And so for us, the customer experience has always been the top priority. So we we took a step back and did everything that we could to kind of you know rebuild our systems and everything so we could handle that type of stuff in the future. And 
um, things just kept cruising from there, right? There's that initial boost from Shark Tank. So the end of uh, 2019, it was just huge for us. And then things, you know, they level out and we're still going really well until um, COVID hit in early March. Once that hit, we saw just instantaneously within a few days, just a massive a massive tank in our online conversion. Obviously all of our events, everything stopped. And so, you know, a majority of our sales just were gone because we couldn't go do these live sales anymore. And people weren't buying anything online for, for a couple of weeks. Right. But then it started to pick up again, like as soon after that initial scare where people were kind of tight pocketed and a little bit scared, e-commerce started to pick back up again. And by the end of, of 2020, we were kind of moving and grooving again. Um, but because our conversion dropped so much at the start of COVID, um, we kind of said, hey, we're not going to spend as much money on advertising. There's no point in, in spending this much money with a, with a lower conversion rate. So we'll just wait this out, wait for kind of the economy to pick back up and everything to look relatively normal again, and we'll invest in product development. So most of 2020, that's what we were really, really busy with. We invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in marketing materials, as well as new new product development, which we're excited about launching in 2021. We've got some big launches planned for, for May. We'll, we'll actually be doing another Kickstarter for um, you know, a new line of products that we're launching and then a big launch in quarter four of, of some really, really cool revolutionary uh, products for the recovery space that we think will be even you know 10 times bigger than, than the meteor. So we're excited. You know, I... I didn't see when your episode aired for whatever reason, because if I would have, I would have bought it because I've just got some <laughs> back issues. Maybe it was from playing football in seventh grade for a year. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Old football injury. But uh, I want to know, because the one I have, it's comparable. It doesn't heat up. It's too big. I'm sure it wasn't cheap. Where, because I'm going to buy yours, by the way, because we just watched your pitch a little bit ago and I'm like, all right, I need to, need to go on the website and buy one. Um, the heat, I'm assuming, is a big component, but I'm curious in, in the massage ball space, if you will, and foam rollers, where do you fit from a competitive standpoint and why do people buy your product and love your product as opposed to all the other stuff out there? For sure. So when you go on and look up, you know, like vibrating massage balls, you'll see a million things out there on Amazon. You'll, you'll find a dozen, you know, little $30 massage balls. Um, and then there's some more expensive ones of, you know, some of our bigger competitors that have, you know, products that are a little bit more comparable. Um, some that are even a little bit bigger and feel more aggressive and powerful. Um, and we kind of fit somewhere in the middle, right? Those, those $30 massage balls that, that vibrate, um, really are providing very little therapeutic effect. Again, that's what makes ours difference is, is that we spent thousands of hours doing research on vibration and the exact amplitudes and frequencies that you need to produce an effect, right? So again, uh, too low of an amplitude and it's really not gonna produce any significant effect on, on your body, right? You may get some, um, some stimulation on, on, the, on your nerves and your skin, um, but you're not gonna get any type of deep um, muscle stiffness reduction or anything from the smaller devices. So they're not going to provide a benefit. Um, what you're talking about, some of the bigger ones, right, that are that sometimes even more aggressive um, can actually face a problem as well. So if, 
I'm sure you, you may be familiar with like percussion massagers, like all the guns that are out there and the, the big vibrating devices. We have, Jono, we have one of those guns too. And here's the problem is I come home from the office, my wife who works full time and takes care of our seventh month old. If I look at her and say, Hey, can you hit me with the massage gun, babe? She's going to pick it up and beat me with it. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and I, and then, yeah. And that's all. Yeah. And then, then I, you know, people, I guess use them by themselves and I'm like, I'm going to separate my shoulder trying yeah, to, get to, so that, that makes no sense either. So to me, those things are worthless again, unless you're maybe a physical therapist and you're using right. it there. But I, I we, again, we have one and it just doesn't get used because I, I, I don't have the audacity to ask. Right. And, yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. They, they have their place and they, and they can, they can be beneficial um, depending on that use and application and the person. Right. And that's kind of the, one of the most amazing things about the human body is that every body is, is different. Right. And, and you uh, respond differently to different types of therapies, right? Not any one diet is going to affect the same person the same way. Not every type of therapy is going to affect the same person in any way. So those massage guns are, you know, they really have a good application in like big athletes, right? Like a linebacker using it on their quads and stuff where they're trying to get real deep and they have high pain tolerance and they're used to that type of stuff. But try using one of those massage guns like on your upper neck, right? When you have a headache, it's just going to give you brain damage, right? Um, but But what we found is is too high of amplitude. So a lot of those percussion massagers that are hard, quite aggressive, have high amplitudes. Um, they have benefits in certain places, but um, our research has shown that really high amplitudes actually produce an involuntary muscle contraction. Um, and can, those uh, too high amplitude can, can actually fatigue your muscle, right? So it may feel good and produce this effect of like, oh yeah, deep tissue massage. But in reality, it's damaging your muscle or forcing it to contract. So it's actually slowing your recovery time. So the vibration of the meteor is designed to be, it, it, it can feel relatively aggressive, but it's the amplitude is not high enough to produce any type of damage. Um, it's more soothing. So instead of feeling aggressive, like a really deep, you know, hard pounding from a gun, it feels soothing, right? You're going to feel a, a relief from pain. Um, and the nice thing about it is again, because it's, it's not on a handle like those percussion massagers is that you get to kind of decide how aggressive it is, um, by putting your body weight into it, right. You can put, sit it in a chair and lean back against it. My wife uses it laying down in bed you know, puts it on her neck. Um, you can use just the heat. You can use just the vibration. You can roll out your feet with it, right. You can use it like a foam roller and kind of just choose how deep you want it to go, depending on your level of tolerance, depending on your body type but that vibration is always going to be therapeutic, never damaging. Um, and, and that's kind of the, the main difference of our product. And again, there's nothing out there in the massage ball space that heats as well as vibrates. That heating component is, um, is quite nice that the meteor gets about 120 degrees, which is just about as hot as you want it before it starts to feel uncomfortable. Um, and that in combination with the vibration we found is just the, the best way to, induce blood flow to reduce muscle stiffness and to actually um, inhibit your perception of pain. That's actually one of the main things that vibration does in our research that we found is, you know, the same reason that if you hit your head on something, you kind of start rubbing your head, it's just natural human instinct to rub a spot that hurts. And that's because there's two ways that pain is communicated to your brain. One is um, kind of a, a slower pain. It's like the deeper throbbing aches, um, that most people experience with chronic pain and stuff like that. And then there's a, a faster response pain and those, those nerves and those signals all go to the same place. So what humans have instinctually found is that when you 
hit your head and it kind of starts to throb, if you rub it, your, your brain starts to pay more attention to the feeling on your skin. Um, and it blocks, it blocks the transmission of that deeper throb, right? So what we found with our level of vibration is that it's stimulating the nerve receptors in your skin. Um, you know, I won't get too sciencey and, and too deep because I don't want to lose anybody, but um, it, it actually inhibits your brain's ability to perceive other deeper pain, which is good yeah, for two it's kind of a, What I'm reading from this, John, is it's kind of a distractor or a redirector for the brain. Correct. Right. So when people are experiencing chronic pain, what, what your body tends to do is walk differently, move differently, because you're trying to protect an area from feeling that pain. So when you can inhibit that pain and produce an effect where that pain is, is kind of gone for a while, right? The same way you take Advil or something like that, your body actually starts to move more normally. You're not guarding anymore and your body is able to repair itself faster. The other thing is that if you've ever used like a foam roller, um, especially if you've ever used a ro ro foam roller on your IT band area, <laughs> it can be quite painful. Um, the actual act of getting a deep tissue massage and foam rolling and using, you know, one of those massage guns sometimes isn't always very comfortable. So the vibration will actually inhibit some of the pain that you're feeling. So you can get a deeper, more effective roll. You can get deeper into your tissue. Um, you can get a more effective rollout without feeling so uncomfortable. So it's got a, uh, it's got a pain in inhibiting effect right there during the process of recovery. So you can get a better effective rollout. Um, and it has a long-term effect of actually just inhibiting your brain's ability to feel that pain. Cause when you have so much sensation in an area from, from the vibration, your brain kind of starts to say like, okay, we get it. There's stuff happening over there. Like we can start to ignore that, you know? Um, and it, it produces great results in, in recovery and rehabilitation to have that effect. What's your three to five year vision for the company? Yeah. So my, my Western's main goal is to just continue to provide products that help people live better lives, right. To not have to, to feel inhibited by pain, whether it's performing better in sports or just being able to, to function normally. And we will continue to, to put out new products over the next three to five years. Um, but we're also working on a lot of other cool, cool projects, including just education, right? Like an educational platform that will help um, people to recover, right? Educational platforms for clinicians, how to use these types of products and devices in their clinics to help people recover. Um, and the plan is just to, to grow and expand and become leaders in the world for rehabilitation and recovery. That's, that's our, our real goal. And we're, we've got a strong foundation um, and a lot of cool stuff that's going to be happening this year for people to keep an eye out and, and see where that goes. So. And as you look at, you know, your experience in building this and scaling it um, over the past few years now, and man, you've accomplished a lot in a pretty short period of time. But as you look back and reflect on that, are there any lessons uh, or, or key takeaways that, that you've really learned that the entrepreneurs listening to this might find interesting? Oh man, it's the journey has been full of, of lessons, sometimes expensive lessons, but <laughs> lessons nonetheless. I mean, um, again, being a student, not really an engineering student, nonetheless, right? Like I have no concept of marketing and running a business or, or any of these things. Um, but just in running my business for a few months, I feel like I, I learned just as much in my entire educational, you know, career. Um, so you, you learn a ton, but the biggest thing is, is, is that I've learned is to um, be confident and to take chances and to just go for it, right? Like 
before I started Milestorm, I always talked with my friends. You know, you always have those ideas like, oh, we can be millionaires. It's a great idea. Let's do it someday, right? And and you just, it's kind of all talk, you know, and you never actually do anything about it. And with Milestorm, it was, there was kind of a point that I hit. It was like, you know what? The next idea that I have, I'm just going to go for it, right? And like, maybe I fall on my face, but hopefully I'll learn something from it. Um, and then I'll try again and be able to get a little bit further, right? And so I, I've looked at my experience with, with Milestorm you know, from very, very early on as, as an educational experience. I was excited about the learning opportunities and less about whether we, you know, were successful or not. Obviously, my goal was always to do everything we could to be successful and to take these chances and to take risks. But I was in part, I had the confidence to take those risks because even if I failed, I was going to be excited about learning something. Um, and that mindset, I think, has provided me probably the most benefit in my entrepreneurial uh, path so far is just not being afraid to take risks because I'm more excited about the, the learning experience than I am about the money. So you went into the whole experience setting expectations around it being a growth experience regardless of where the product or the business went. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And, and that doesn't that's not to say that like I didn't have really strong goals financially, right? You have to, 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 to be in business. And those are the risks that you take revolve around that. But the, the motivation was the growth and um, the, the, the money was kind of the, the means to that, that goal in a way. Where is the best place for our listeners to check out and buy the product? And then how can they follow you on social media? Yep. So just search Milestorm, M-Y-O, Storm. Um, we're on pretty much all social media, Facebook, Instagram. Um, you can follow us there to buy the product directly from our website, www.milestorm.com, or you can find um, our product on Amazon. So if you search Milestorm Meteor, you'll see us there um, as well. And um, yeah. Well, we, uh, we appreciate your time. You're, uh, you're killing it. You've got all kinds of exciting stuff that we can't wait to see come off the assembly six line. Six new products. I know. Yeah, usually wow. you hear one or two, so <laughs> six. So hopefully yeah. they're all, all home runs for you. And as someone that suffers from some of the problems you're trying to solve, I'm, I'm pumped to go on and buy one. Go, I'm gonna go, to, go to Biostorm, get your media, get three or four medias. You're going to need them. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get one. Uh, my wife had an IT band situation that uh, took three or four months to work itself out, but the uh, this would have helped. She used a foam roller, and you were right, Jono. It it didn't work, and it was painful. So excited <laughs> to own a meteor. All right, thanks. Yeah, we so so appreciate your time, and uh, look forward to continuing to watch your journey as an entrepreneur. Cool, appreciate it, guys. Thanks. We're back. What'd you learn? A uh, couple things. Uh, I learned that it's important to surround yourself with great people. I did not know that. I need to start doing that. <laughs> Me too. All kidding aside, another great recurring theme when we interview these great entrepreneurs. Really, really big believer. Jono loves to have great, what we call, Tom, A players around them. And especially when a company is small. Uh, you, you might be able to get away with a you know B plus player or maybe a B minus player, but when your organization is small, you must have at your core a few A players, a few key players that are willing to run alongside of you and make the business work and invest as if they are part of ownership. 
So surround yourself with great people. Um, they did a substantial amount of testing, split testing with pricing. I think pricing was difficult for them, so they were willing to do a lot of testing in that area. And sometimes an entrepreneur will think they know what the pricing should be or how something should be marketed or packaged, and they don't take the time to do the testing and get the feedback. Especially with pricing, we know that the optics are very important. If your product is too inexpensive, it could say to someone, well, this couldn't be uh, a very important or worthwhile product. It's not expensive enough. So you have to be expensive enough. You have to push envelopes on the higher side of the pricing. But the real key is that they took the time to do the work and get the feedback on the pricing. So uh, I thought that was very, very cool. Um, the other thing that Jono said that I, I really, really liked is he looked at building his business as an educational mm. experience, mm -hmm. which to me really, really touched me because if we go in with that kind of um, opportunity mindset, this is an opportunity Tom and I uh, have a business together. This is an opportunity, Tom, where almost every day we're asking, you know, what's going to happen today and with our business, with our products and services, how can we make it better? What are we going to learn? We are lifetime learners. We are conscious incompetence. We try to become very, very aware of what we don't know. And I think that when he phrased it that way, it just resonated with me and, and hit me hard. It's like we should be looking at our business as an educational opportunity because it probably won't be the last business that we start either together or separately. And so what could we learn from this opportunity together and with our great partners? Don't, don't mess with me. <laughs> Don't, don't even put the thought in my mind that we may have to do this again. We might have to do oh it my again. God. Yeah. After, after this is a phenomenal success, we may have to do something else. Or not. Or maybe I'll just be too old and you'll just be visiting me at the home. Bringing me a sandwich because I love sandwiches. I, I pick you up from there every morning right now. <laughs> I'm done? I'm done. Okay. I had many of the same. Uh, 3D printers. And what I mean by that is there's so many cool things that you can test so cheap now. You know, it's not like you need to spend tens of thousands of dollars to build a prototype. So if you have an idea, something that you want to build, something you want to create, a widget that you think could be a cool idea, through 3D printing, you can build a prototype to at least physically show people and say, hey, great idea, terrible idea, adjust this, do that. So if you have something in mind, you know, again, it doesn't have to be this massive capital expenditure to build a prototype. Um, the pricing, you, you, you're exactly right. You know, you and I work with a lot of coaches and consultants that, you know, could price themselves at anything. They're selling their knowledge, their skill set, their ability to help people. And so there's not really a cost of that that's normal, right? I mean, it could be hundreds, it could be thousands. Uh, but what we're constantly helping people do is charge the right amount because most people don't charge enough, but some people charge too much. And, you know, and, and what Jono said was, you know, if I price this thing too low, the perceived value isn't there, yeah. which sucks, but it is the reality of just human nature and how we do things. Being customer centric and fo fo focusing on the customer experience was great. And then you're exactly right. Uh, you know, I put in quotations, excited to learn. He has an excitement to learn. So he doesn't look at a problem as a problem. He looks at a problem as an opportunity to learn and get better. And I think that's so important for 
every entrepreneur in every business is when you encounter something, okay, this isn't going to ruin my day or derail me. I need to take a deep breath and I need to use this as an opportunity to get better to fix something within my business so that it doesn't happen again. And every time you, you tackle a problem and you put the time and energy into it to solve it, it really increases your confidence. It really increases um, your, your mojo as an entrepreneur. And I feel that you know that's happened to us over the last couple of years as we've iterated inside of our business model. Every time we solve a problem or improve the product, the deliverables, the service, the experience for both customers and internal partners, we feel great. We walk away high-fiving each other in the parking lot and we go home and we're tired, but it's a good tired because we have grown. And we look, and I actually look, I wasn't kidding when I said this is probably not our, your last rodeo or my last rodeo, whether we do something together or separate, look how much we're learning through this experience. And is it profitable? Do we keep score based on profitability and the growth of EBITDA? Of course we do. But there's psychic capital. There's a capital that you gain by knowing you, you're becoming even better as an entrepreneur. Yep. Uh, Jono's great, great company. Excited to see where he takes it. Uh, a lot of great lessons here. Can I come over and play with your ball? I'm trying to think. <laughs> I, well, the bad news is you do have my address. You know where I live. <laughs> I the good news is there's a gate at least. So, Well, I have I I have a ladder. I could climb over that. That's if you tried to climb over ball. my gate, I'd, I'd be driving <laughs> to the office in the morning and you'd be on the sidewalk. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Another good episode. We'll see you next week on an all-new episode of Outside the Tank.